Welcome to You, Me, and PD, a podcast about the experience of living with Parkinson's disease where we share the voices of both the caregiver and the diagnosed. Jeremy Lickness received his diagnosis of young onset Parkinson's disease in early 2020. He and his wife Doreen share candid conversations about symptoms, solutions, challenges, triumphs, and both the physical and emotional aspects of living with Parkinson's disease. Season one, the year of the diagnosis. And now your hosts, Jeremy and Doreen. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm the host today, Jeremy Lickness. Very excited today to return. I know it's been a while since our last episode. I recently joined the board for a new nonprofit that I'm excited to share with you. It's called the Young Onset Parkinson's Network. And the idea is to provide programming, resources, and a community to those of you diagnosed at an early stage. And this is something that is increasing in frequency. I'm not going to get into too many details in this show, but look for that in an upcoming episode as we dive deep into it. But without further ado, I'm going to kick off episode four. We call this Facing the Music with David Loud. My guest is David Loud. He's a renowned Broadway music director, arranger, actor, and now an author with an upcoming book called Facing the Music, a Broadway memoir. Welcome, David. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for including me in your broadcast. Oh, I'm excited. Thanks for coming on board. So let's uh, start with the the basics. Um, We've got a varied audience, and for those who may not know you or be familiar with your work. You meet someone and they say, David, who are you? What do you do? What's, what's your answer for that? Well, the answer has changed recently. Um, <laughs> I was a stage-struck kid who wanted to, wanted to do Broadway shows more than anything in the world. And my dreams came impossibly true very early in my life. I was very fortunate and I made my Broadway debut as an actor in a show when I was 19 years old. Wow. And started a career on Broadway. I sort of figured out pretty quickly that I wasn't going to have a career as an actor. (laughs) But as a music director, I found a a real place for myself. And I worked for the next 34 years doing Broadway shows, mostly as a music director. Although I did act in in two two more shows after that first one. And when at 45, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease... Um, I was able to maintain my music directing career for a couple of years. I was able to disguise it and hide it for a while, which was my choice at the time. Uh, when that became ridiculous and unbearable, I opened up to the people that I worked with about my um, Parkinson's, and I kept working um, for a few more years until it just became impractical. And then I started teaching at the Manhattan School of Music. And I'm the luckiest person in the world because I find it just as satisfying and um, energizing as, as, I, as I had with my music directing career on Broadway. I love teaching. It's been a, a, a huge gift in my life to have this change and the joy of connecting with young people, inspiring young people, learning from young people, teaching young people, 
has been um, amazing for me. I love it. Well, that's an amazing story. And there's so many parts of it to break down for people who have Parkinson's disease, right? Because I think everyone struggles with that when they receive the diagnosis of who to tell, how to respond to that. And then, you know, those deep thoughts about what am I going to do with my career and how long can I do this? It is, I think, more rare than it should be for people to be able to switch careers and Mm -hmm. be immensely satisfied and love what they're doing. So congratulations on that. That's super exciting. Things fell into place at the right time for me. And prior to Parkinson's, if you had asked me, you know, what would it be like if you had to give up your career? I, I would have been destroyed by that. Um, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. My parents were both actually teachers, but I never imagined myself as a teacher in an academic um, environment. And yeah, I was very lucky, very lucky indeed. So how did that process un- unfold? Did you intentionally look at options to sort of shift your career into, or was it more of a serendipitous occasion that the opportunity it, came up? You would think that I would have planned it a little bit more carefully, <laughs> but it was completely serendipitous. When I was diagnosed, I, as I said, I immediate, my immediate reaction was to, you know, turtle up and, and not, not share this information with my friends, my colleagues, my collaborators. We kept it, my, my husband and I kept it very quiet. I told a few members of my family, and that was really it. Because I was convinced that I would be perceived as damaged goods and I would not be hired to do more Broadway shows. And I mean, conducting a Broadway show is a big responsibility. It's a very physical job. It's one that requires great stamina. We do eight shows a week. I have to maintain authority over actors, musicians. I have to continue to collaborate. And so it's a, it's a very complicated job sure. and a wonderful job. I loved, I loved being a Broadway music director. So I thought, better hide this, which I guess is a common reaction. It turned out to be very difficult to disguise what was going on. And it became a little ridiculous with lots of people pretending that they didn't know what was happening with me right. and me pretending that people didn't know. I was so scared of what my coming out as a person with Parkinson's would do to my career that I let it go on far too long. When I finally started telling people, all of whom said, I know, and thank God you finally told me, um, there was such compassion and such relief that I had finally, you know, gotten over my fear and complete support. I, I mean, the people who had been hiring me continued to hire me. And the collaborations that I had uh, continued. They evolved in certain ways. You know, I, I started supervising shows rather than conducting them. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I really had to stop playing the piano, which was very difficult for me. Because that had been my identity since I was a little boy. Right. And I want to explore that too in a a minute um, because I think you have a very interesting story uh, starting out. But before we do that, since we're talking about 
coming out with your diagnosis. I understand that it was early 2007 that there is a specific production called Curtains, if I'm correct. And you said that there was something that happened that opening night that really made you face the music, quote unquote, right? Can you walk us through what what that was and how that impacted you? Sure. Curtains was a a big Broadway musical uh, starring David Hyde Pierce. Uh, The score is by John Kander and Fred Ebb and Rupert Holmes wrote the book. Scott Ellis was the director. Deb Monk, Karen Ziemba, Jason Danieli were some of the other actors in the in the show. It was a big, splashy sort of murder mystery, fun comic Valentine to uh, the theater. It, the The lead character, Lieutenant Chaffee, who's investigating this murder that happened on stage, loves the theater and loves investigating and learning all you know, the backstage secrets of the that happened on this show where there's been a murder. And I played the conductor of the show and I was the conductor of the musical. So I was <laughs> both an actor and the music director of Curtains. And opening night, when I arrived at the theater to conduct the opening night performance, I couldn't find my score. My, my big conductor score was gone. And I didn't know how I was going to conduct the show without the score. I'd never done it before. It was a brand new musical. We couldn't find it anywhere. And it was opening night. We weren't going to not do the show. So I stood up in front of the orchestra and without a score and started to conduct. And it was actually fine. The conducting was fine. I knew the show backwards and forwards. We've been working on it for years. But I noticed because my left hand was not occupied with turning the pages of the score, which is what I usually did with my left hand. Okay. You notice that I was essentially conducting the show with one hand. I had modified my technique in such a way that I wasn't using the left half of my body at all. I was giving cues with my head and my eyes instead of with my left hand. Sometimes I was adjusting my movements to, to be smaller, which is harder for the orchestra to see. The act of conducting without the score that night um, revealed to me how compromised my body had become. And I had, I had been completely ignoring willfully all of the symptoms and signals that I had been encountering at that time. I, I would find myself at home typing with only my right hand while my left hand just dangled at my side. Um, it was hard to get in and out of shirts. I had a real problem with, with a stiffness in my left shoulder that I didn't understand how it had come come about. I assumed it was from conducting or overconducting, hmm. but I didn't know. Um, but that night, because of what had been revealed to me, I thought, I have to deal with this. And I started going to a physical therapist and trying to figure out what the problem was. And he was mystified and he suggested that I see a neurologist. And I was like, why would I go to a neurologist for a shoulder injury? Right. He, he said, I think you really should see this guy. And I went to a doctor and I walked into his office and he said, how long have you had Parkinson's? Mm. And I said, what's Parkinson's? I, mean, right. I really didn't, I hadn't put it together at all. 
I didn't know what I had. I didn't know what the problem was. But he knew by looking at me that I mean, his diagnosis, his visual diagnosis was exactly right. That must have been pretty abrupt, though, to be oh, exposed to that that way. It was a terrible way to learn what the problem was. Although, I don't know. I was in such a space of denial anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else it would have happened, actually. He turned out to be a problematic doctor for a number of reasons. But, yeah, that was a, that was a, rough, that was a rough moment. How long have you had Parkinson's? What's Parkinson's? So if you unwind that and, and think about all the period of denial, how long before that, we'll call it a fateful visit, right? Did you actually notice things were, were not right? It was at least six months, probably a year. Okay. I remember, I remember not being able to do push-ups anymore because of the problem with my shoulder. I remember I would have my hand on the arm of a chair and it would feel just frozen. It would feel like petrified. And I could move it eventually, but there was a, it was a, a feeling I'd never experienced before, my left, my left side. And everybody's symptoms for Parkinson's are so different. Right. From person to person, the experience is so personally tailored to our bodies. I didn't recognize descriptions of these symptoms as, you know, they were not familiar to me, like, oh, I must have Parkinson's. I didn't, my brain hadn't gone there yet. This was a neurological problem. I assumed it was physical. Right. Did you have anyone reach out to you during that period and suggest things besides your personal trainer or ask about any of your visible symptoms? No. But while I was hiding my diagnosis you know, and continuing to work, people would come up to me and and say, I remember the, this kind actor came, came up to me. We were in rehearsal, and he said, has it been hard dealing with your new condition? And I was so shocked by that, that he, mm-hmm. he had seen through what I thought was my performance as being totally fine. Right. That I, I kind of snapped at him and, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, and didn't acknowledge the kindness of his gesture or the reality that I was clearly ex- more exposed than I thought I was. And I felt, I felt terrible about that later. But eventually it just became clear that I could not hide this anymore. I had a number of wonderful like assistants who sort of on a need to know basis, I would let them know, you know, I'm going to need help putting on my jacket today. Let's do it in a way that people don't see me struggling with my jacket and things like that. And that got me, got me through a, a number of situations, but it just became too much and, and I couldn't, I couldn't hide it anymore. Right. And it was such a relief to not be hiding it. The fear of exposure was so much more paralyzing than the actual Parkinson's. 
And that's something I hear very frequently. I think most people that I've met and talked to about their diagnosis covered it, hit it mm-hmm. for quite some time. And everyone shares that they had such a sense of relief. And I think everyone is universally amazed at the support they get. Um, I know in my case, in my IT career, I had uh, people close to me caution me and say that, you know, if you go public with this, uh, employers don't want the overhead of having to deal with someone who needs extra accommodations. And I went public pretty quickly because uh, it, it's just sort of my nature. I've always been an advocate for different causes. And and uh, this was something that I knew I wanted to be vocal about. And fortunately, my employer was very supportive and provided accommodations and, and really gave me the ability to to plug into it. But I know some people, um, the reality is they're in an industry or at a certain company where it's it's not so positive. So it's it's good to hear about that support. And speaking of support, my wife is is usually on the podcast because she's my my care partner, right? My main caregiver. And we like that perspective. And you mentioned that uh, when you got diagnosed, you shared it with your your husband. How how did this uh, impact him and, and how did that uh, affect uh, how you plan life moving forward? Well, it was a huge surprise to him. Um, he is a very observant person and knew that there were physically things wrong with me. And our relationship had been sort of the exact reverse of what it became. I mean, he had had some major physical problems, some liver problems and some mercury poisoning problems and Lyme disease. And for a while, I was his caregiver. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a really rough two years where it was very hard for him to get out of bed. He was depressed and uh, tired all day long. And we made it through that period. And so when I sort of became the one who needed the care he was very familiar with how I was feeling. And I was very familiar with how he was feeling. It, what, that didn't necessarily make it easy to, tra- to transition from one way of having our relationship to the other, but at least there was, there was a model, a pattern in our past that we could look at. He has been extraordinary in terms of taking up the challenge of being a caregiver and never once wondering about it or questioning about it. He's, I'm just so, so lucky. The, the Parkinson's impacted our relationship, not in the ways that I expected it to. Right. The caregiving part has been natural and easy for us. It's, it created other problems for us that we had to go to a couples counselor to work out, and we did. And in a way, our relationship is stronger now than it would have been if we hadn't had that challenge because of the work we did to get through that challenge. We were married after my diagnosis, and uh, it was the best day of my life, and mm-hmm. it is as well, I think. The thought of going through it alone is terrifying to me. 
I'm so lucky that I had a partner. Yeah, that's amazing. And the parallels of your story, because my wife had major back surgery that caused me to be her caregiver. Oh, my. And it was uh, interesting because part of her prep for the surgery was to go on long walks. And so Mm -hmm. we had these two weeks leading up to a, I think it was a nine hour surgery where we would just go on long walks and it totally revitalized our relationship. And that bond that we formed carried forward to when I got my diagnosis and, and now we're, we're uh, each other's support group, but we definitely uh, tap into, to more community as well. Uh, there's a local young onset Parkinson's group that I'm a member of, and I'm curious, have you plugged into any community in your area outside of your local support groups, like your husband, your family, your friends? I have not had good luck with that. And I, okay. I would like to have joined a group like that. I was 45 when I was diagnosed, so I, that qualifies as young onset. It does. In New York at that time, at least the groups I tried were not helpful. They either were not only young onset or weren't run in the way that I was hoping that they would be run. I would love to have a have a group, have support, have people to talk to about, you know, getting the medication to work better, tricks and those things that that I think we all deal with. Maybe I've just not looked hard enough, but mm-hmm. it's it's not something that's not a problem that I've solved yet. And I would love to to solve that at some point. Well that's uh interesting because I mentioned at the beginning of the show the Young Onsets Parkinson network. And that's uh, something we're launching for the exact reasons you described. So I'll share some information with you after the show because be great. that is uh, so important with community. Let's talk about it. It's, it's funny that um, you're teaching now in Manhattan. I was actually there last week with my wife doing a medical follow-up with uh, some of her surgeons. And it was blue skies, beautiful weather, but cold and windy. Uh-huh. <laughs> And uh, so I, I didn't realize I was probably right around the corner from you, but what are some of the adaptations or accommodations you rely on for your day-to-day right now? Is there anything specific you do or use that, that helps you do your day-to-day tasks and do your teaching effectively? Well, the pandemic uh, opened up Zoom as a teacher, as a teaching tool to me. And we kept, at Manhattan School of Music, we kept our classes going like 100% of the time. We didn't, we didn't drop it for a moment. We were determined to keep teaching the kids the same way we had over Zoom, which, which required a lot of adjustment and a lot of work and a lot of, a lot of like just compromising in terms of how we, how we were going to teach. But I think we, we really solved you know, 98% of the problems of how to teach musical theater over a program that has delays in it and where music is difficult <laughs> to, to accommodate. And I'm actually having some physical problems now walking and I've continued to Zoom some of my classes and that's been a great benefit for me. I also picked up more work during the pandemic because I, I, 
I started teaching a course in Boston, which <laughs> I could do because of the Zoom, right. because of the pandemic. You know, I couldn't have gone to Boston to teach this course, but I could change the channel on my computer and keep talking. And all of a sudden, I was teaching in Boston. Um, so that was actually an unexpected benefit of the pandemic. I, I did, when I changed um, neurologists at one point, I, I got through a different set of medication. I got the ability to play the piano back. Wow. I've also continued to conduct. But conducting, you know, three or four performances over a weekend of the student musical is very different from conducting eight shows a week on Broadway. Sure. And I've had to really, you know, tone down what was my style to a more calm, efficient, and um, hopefully clear conducting style. It's, it's, I conduct it very differently than I, than I used to. And that's possibly for the better as well. <laughs> uh, I use a walker now occasionally to get around. I actually have spine surgery coming up pretty soon to deal with some of the problems that I've had with my legs. Well, we fly to New York to, to see our spine surgeon. So some of the best are, are in your area. Right. Where was your wife's surgery? Uh, the Columbia Spine Center. The So Dr. Linky is the name of her surgeon. He's uh, one of the top uh, spinal deformity surgeons. So she had severe scoliosis. Mm. And she had one surgery to straighten and fuse her spine. And then a revision surgery when some of the rods broke. I'm having a laminectomy, which is, I think, a fairly minor surgery to to look at some of the herniated discs that I have. And a life spent on the piano bench has sort of led to my spinal problems. Are you doing any physical therapy or exercise for Parkinson's now? Yes. I found a really good physical therapy place that does, let me make sure I get this right, um, LVTG Big Therapy. Have you heard of that? It's a it's a kind of physical therapy that acknowledges the Parkinson's and has a special set of exercises that they do for people with Parkinson's. It's about... Yeah, I haven't heard those acronyms. I'll have to being, look into that. Being big with your gestures. And oh, yes, yes, absolutely. I can never remember what the exact acronym is, but it's something like yeah. LVT big. I've, I've heard it like amp training, amplitude, something, power big gestures, but I know what you're talking about. And a little bit of cognitive, like recall and memory exercise. Yeah, it's good. That's great. Well, let's talk about uh, Pivot a little bit because we've talked about the changes you've had to make and what you're doing now with your career. But this book that's coming out, Facing the Music, is about an amazing career that spanned three decades, right, Or, or longer. Tell us about the book and your motivation to write it? Well, I I gave a commencement address at the school that I grew up at, up in the Adirondacks. Uh, my, my parents taught at a boarding school for fourth through eighth graders up in the Adirondacks, about 100 students on an organic farm, and the kids milked the cows and plucked the chickens and composted the garden. And they're very um, into mountain climbing and sports. And I was like, I want to do Broadway shows. 
<laughs> alien at this school, pretty much. But my parents taught there, and so I went there for five years, uh, fourth through eighth grade. And they asked me back uh, six and a half years ago to give a commencement address. And they wanted about 10 minutes. And I gave them 40 minutes, and I played two songs on the piano, and I talked about coming out as a gay man, and I talked about coming out as a person with Parkinson's. And I think it was a little more than they had bargained for. <laughs> but there was a woman in the audience who came up to me afterward and said how moved she was by the speech and how she thought it'd be a great book. And I thought that was very nice of her. And I went on to the next person who had um, something nice to say to me. And this woman went to my husband and said, I don't think David was listening to me. I'm a publisher. I, could, I think this should be a book. And if he writes it, I will publish it. Wow. So luckily she made that second try and Pedro, my husband, got her card and info and I had lunch with her a few days later and I've been writing the damn book ever since. Uh, it took me about six and a half years and it grew from the speech into being something else, but it, it does still have its basis in that, that commencement address that I gave. And it turned out to be, I discovered, a memoir about my time on Broadway and the teachers who got me there. And the, there's, a, there's a position that the conductor has in, in a Broadway musical that's running where you are the heartbeat of this organism that uh, involves uh, probably usually about 100 people putting on this story for the audience. And... My position is in the center of this. If I look up, I see the stage. If I look down, I see the musicians. And behind me, you can feel them on the back of your neck, is the audience. And the listening, the communicating, the collaboration that happens between all of those elements comes through me, through the music, you know, my beat. It's an extraordinary place to be and a privileged place to be. And I loved being there for the, the shows that I did. I conducted Ragtime on Broadway. Hmm. I conducted Curtains, a beautiful musical called Steel Pier, The Scottsboro Boys. I did a beautiful revival of a show called She Loves Me on Broadway. And these experiences were so brightly potent in my memory that it was easy to write about them. I loved I loved accessing those memories and getting them down onto the page. I also acted in a play called Masterclass with a brilliant actress named Zoe Caldwell, who was playing Maria Callas in this play. I was on stage the whole night with her, sitting at the piano, and um, that, was, that was a really extraordinary experience, to be so close up with one of the world's great dramatic actresses watching her do this extraordinary play for a year and a half. We did it together. And then the second half of the book turns out to be about dealing with the limitations that Parkinson's created for me and ultimately finding that I had to say goodbye to this life and, and, and that chapter of you know, what I was going to do for a living. Well, I'll tell you, the passion and the poetic beauty it seems of of that process and those experiences come through very strongly when you talk about it so i'm very excited 
to see how that plays out in your book. Uh, I've read some of the quotes that uh, some people who've had early access and some of the colleagues have shared, and it just sounds amazing. And I love, for me, I get the most out of books where I learn something new and mm. experience something different. And I couldn't have been farther from Broadway. I was a technophile. I never learned how to play an instrument. Um, I, I love to dance. <laughs> That's about <laughs> the, the closest uh, I came. But uh, it sounds like the story captures the essence of that experience in Broadway, but also tempers it with the, the reality of, of what happened with your diagnosis. So I think uh, people listening should relate well to a story like that. Because like I said, when you were sharing your process, I think it's something so many of us share is the shock of the, the, the denial in the beginning. I know that for me, my symptoms, I wasn't necessarily denying them. I was actually seeking help, but I was constantly being told I was too young to have Parkinson's. So don't worry about that. Right. Oh my. And, and that was a, a shift. We all have that impact when we get the diagnosis and then we have to think about how things change and all of those elements come together. It sounds like when you were writing this, you might not have started the journey expecting the ending to unfold as, as it did. What do you think the biggest takeaway from this is? Is it the experience of, of Broadway? Is it the, the poignancy of, of the adjustments you had to make? Is it all of the above? Is there that's exactly what it's about. It's a, it's the experience and how hard it was to give it up, but how right it was for that time and who I was at that at that moment. Being a music director on a Broadway show is it's a mystery to a lot of people. People don't know what that is. Right. Um, it would be it's very hard for people to imagine the kind of collaborative work that has to happen and the the combination of being a performer and also being one of the people in charge of the show is complicated to, to deal with. And even within the business, within you know the Broadway community, people don't really know everything that a music director does. I would say that we're fairly unappreciated. There's no Tony Award for Best Music Director. Hmm. Uh, we're not paid particularly well. You know, we aren't, we aren't, we don't have star, star salaries coming at us. But the pleasure that I always got from it, you know, never made me question. I mean, I never wanted to do anything else while I was doing it. Having to leave it made me understand much more about what exactly was so thrilling to me about, about having that position and what was, Difficult. The, the last show I did on Broadway was called The Visit. And it was a very dark musical uh, based on a play by Friedrich Dürrenmatt about greed and people's inability to forgive. And we did this dark show and people didn't really care for it. It ran, I think, 12 weeks on Broadway. But we, we performed on the Tony Awards, as most of my shows did. And the conductors that year of the different musicals that had to perform on the Tony Awards, they had us conduct from a men's room on the fifth floor of Radio City Music Hall. And we were beamed you know, by 
like TV so that the actors could see us on stage and the Yorkshire was pre-recorded. So we were conducting to the pre-recorded track, trying to keep the actors on the track. It was such a mess and such an undignified way to, to treat us that I just thought, I remember thinking that night, maybe this is done. Maybe I've had enough of this particular world. And that turned out to be the end of my Broadway career. It was a strange way to end it, but one that made it easier to go on to the next chapter of my life also. I mean, nothing's perfect, I guess. Right. Maybe that's the takeaway from the book. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's perfect. So the book is not out yet, but we can pre-order. You can pre-order it on Amazon, Facing the Music, uh, and it comes out March 22nd. And I'm so excited about it. It was a great pleasure to write, and it's not the book that I thought it was going to be when I started to write it. It turned into something more focused and more personal. I've done readings from it uh, a number of times now, and people have responded really well to that. I think even though it seems like it's sort of an arcane subject matter, there's a universal appeal to people who don't necessarily know what a music director does or spend their lives doing Broadway musicals. I think there's enough in the book that is universal that anybody will enjoy it. That's awesome. I'd love to put you on the spot and ask for a reading. I'd, I'd be happy to read, read read something from it. Let me think for a moment. Okay. I think something that is the essence of your voice in the book, a short excerpt, but that you feel passionate about, doesn't necessarily have to be related to the diagnosis. It can be related to your passion of music, but something that really captures the essence of, of you in that book. I'll read a short little piece first, and then we'll see if you want another one. Okay. Why, asks William Ivy Long, he speaks in a tone so dire that I'm afraid the rest of the question is going to be, has the sun gone out? His dramatic pause, having stretched to the proportions of Greek tragedy, he continues, doesn't the hem on his left sleeve match the hem on his right sleeve? Acolytes scurry, measurements are taken, brows are furrowed. I am standing in the middle of a brightly lit fitting room. There are mirrors everywhere. Time has graciously agreed to stand still for a few moments while the master costumer works on my second act suit for curtains. To be the focus of a William Ivy Long costume fitting is to exist at the center of the universe. Every iota of attention is aimed at you and making you look thinner or taller, at bringing out your cheekbones or flattering your hips or compensating discreetly for that slight irregularity involving your left leg. He sculpts the fabric, the buttons, the zippers, the shoulder pads, tailoring the garment to make you look powerful or innocent or dangerous, whichever is required by the story he is telling. William is wearing what he always wears, a blue blazer, a white shirt, and khakis. That is the only outfit I've ever seen them in, by careful design. He doesn't distract. This magician of velvet, poplin, and lace dresses himself only to disappear. We are in our first week of rehearsals for the Broadway production of Curtains. Three assistants, 
their eyes trained on me as if connected by wires, dark like hummingbirds, making chalk marks on fabric, ripping seams, inserting pins, widening plackets. And there are his eyes, seeing into the future, imagining the garment under lights, against the set, from the balcony, from the front row, and from H101, the seat on the aisle where the critic from the New York Times will be sitting. William's eyes see every detail, every flaw. That ham is crooked. The zipper shows. David, darling, raise your hands. So tight in the back. Why must the fabric bunch like that? Seamstress. Underlings scamper. A wiry old seamstress appears. The lining is rethought. Scissors are employed. Needles threaded. Elastic stays installed. Near the end of the second act of curtains, as I conduct the overture to the show within the show, the podium will rise up, revealing me as Sasha in an ivory-colored Western-style tuxedo, glittering with black rhinestones. The rhinestones form music notes on the staff, scrolling fancifully across the back of my tuxedo jacket. In a razzle-dazzling detail, William has designed the notes to precisely match the melody that the orchestra will be playing as Sasha, my character, levitates into place. The flurry of activity down by the pit will happen in eight measures of music, mere seconds, just enough time to cover a scene change. But William is treating the ivory tux as if it is the suit in which the next king of England is going to be crowned. This is my third fitting, and it won't be my last. My tuxedo is one of over 250 costumes he's designed for curtains. There are 12 major characters, each with several changes. The full company appears in pajamas in one scene, rehearsal clothes in another, and opening night formal wear in yet another. The men and women in the chorus play cowboys, floozies, stagehands, riverboat passengers, and dream dancers. But God damn it, those hems on Sasha's sleeves had better match, or something evil will happen to somebody. <laughs> William has earned the discreetly whispered sobriquet, Poison Ivy, for nothing. I raise my arms again, as if I were conducting. He examines the back of the jacket, peering closely at my sleeves. The world waits. Much better, he says finally, and the color is fantastic. Relief floods the room. Who's next, he calls. A hireling guides me away. As I leave, William is already on his hands and knees, glasses perched on the tip of his nose, intently scrutinizing Deborah Monk's costumed derriere, reworking the draping of one of her glamorous businesswoman outfits. She looks terrific. Disaster, I hear him saying. I change into my street clothes and hurry across town, back to rehearsal. Wow. That's a little uh, character study I did of the, the costume designer. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Is there anything else that you wanted to share or any questions you have for me before we wrap this episode? I'd like to read one more little section, which is about when I was doing non-equity summer stock on, on a little island off the New Jersey coast. Okay. Chapter 14, 1982. Six months after opening on Broadway in a brand new Stephen Sondheim musical, I was playing second piano for a third-rate summer stock production of Little Mary Sunshine in the dark. The theater was on Long Beach Island, a long, thin sliver of sandy land off the New Jersey coast. I was holding a flashlight in my mouth 
trying to see the music in front of me because a thunderstorm had rocketed across the island earlier that evening, knocking out the power. The crew had driven a few cars up to the doors and windows of the theater, illuminating the cast's rehearsal with the car's headlights. Fog swirled, dancing eerily in the bright beams. Certain areas of the stage were pitch black, but the actors lurched bravely around, holding their scripts at odd angles to catch what light they could. Canceling rehearsal was not an option. Pages and pages of dialogue hadn't been rehearsed. Three musical numbers hadn't been staged. The first performance was tomorrow night. Once more from the top, sweet boy, the director said to me. He was a tall, thin, bald ex-dancer who liked to dress up as a warlock with a staff and a cloak and prowl the dark beaches after midnight, terrifying anyone who caught a glimpse of him. For the 45th time that evening, or was it the 145th, I played the introduction to Look for a Sky of Blue, and the actress playing Little Mary began her song with the chorus of Forest Rangers. Halfway through, the director clapped his hands smartly. No, he shouted, step left on when air a cloud of gray, step right on seems to waft your way, and tilt your head up to Jesus on Look for a Sky of Blue. He demonstrated gracefully in the aisle as an apprentice aimed a dying flashlight at his feet. The actress repeated his movements. One of the actresses from the company plopped herself down on the piano bench next to me. She was wearing a voluminous set of rehearsal petticoats. They flopped onto my lap. Let me hold your flashlight, big boy, she said, taking the torch from my mouth. She pointed the light at her face and quickly introduced herself. I'm Arden, she said. I don't think we've met. She was playing the maid, Nancy Twinkle. I'm David, I said. You can hold my flashlight anytime. It's really uncomfortable holding it in my mouth but I don't want you to miss an entrance. She pointed the light at her face again and elaborately rolled her eyes. At this rate, we'll be getting to my song around four in the morning. Wally the warlock here ain't built for speed. She was gangly and cute with a Peter Pan haircut. You're gay, right? She said. She aimed the light at my face. I nodded. Yeah, she said. You play the piano like you give a shit. The director finished his corrections. You'll get it, darlings, he said. And remember, boys, you're going to be wearing big butch forest ranger hats. He looked at me with a wicked grin, amused with himself. Once more from the top, sweet boy. Arden held the light for me as I played the introduction yet again. The Surflight Theater in Beach Haven, New Jersey, was a dump. A defunct auto repair shop had been reincarnated as a summer theater, cement floor and tin roof intact. Incomprehensibly, the raised stage area was positioned so that the actors could only enter from stage right or down the two aisles. In the corner where the stage left entrance should have been was the orchestra pit, which was not a pit, just a cramped area holding two elderly pianos and a damaged set of drums. We put on 12 shows in 12 weeks with no days off. On Sundays, we didn't rehearse, but we performed in the evening. The morning after Little Mary Sunshine opened, we began rehearsals for No No Nanette. A company of 20 actors had been hired for the summer, along with musicians, stage managers, and designers. We lived in a dilapidated former rooming house, a few blocks from the theater. Bunk beds, two to a room. As assistant music director, I was paid $105 a week, minus $30 a week to cover my meals and lodging. A seedy cabin near the theater was reserved for the directors. They rotated in and out, staying only for the week that their show rehearsed. On Tuesdays, exhausted and frustrated, they would run their last late afternoon rehearsal, 
give their final notes, pack their bags, and vacate the cabin, making way for the chipper, unsuspecting schmuck who would start rehearsals with the company the next morning. On opening nights, the outbound director had to watch, helplessly, the fruits of his labors. Unspeakable things happened those Tuesday nights. Actors missed entrances, essential props never appeared, set changes dragged on and on, while the orchestra repeated the same eight measures of music. Entire songs were skipped because lines got confused and cues never came. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for your vulnerability, for sharing your story, and for putting it out there. We will share the link to pre-order the book, and I will reach out to you, and we'll talk about uh, some community and networking as well. That's terrific. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you, um, the work that you're doing with this broadcast. It's, it's terrific to be talking about Parkinson's and educating all of us, and thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, David. It's great meeting you. To learn more about Jeremy and Doreen's journey and for the opportunity to contribute to a cure, please visit us online at youmeandpd.org. You, Me, and PD is produced by Poit Productions in New London, Connecticut. Our show is edited by Brandon Wen. Our music is by the Groove Chillers featuring Carl Franklin and yours truly, Doug Wolverton. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.